So at this point, there's been three years of lull between Iran or Arab and Israel. Uh, so during this time, they actually so these are this is Iran is or Arab whoever is Syria. That's just another name for Syria up to the north of Israel. And so there were three years in which they were not fighting one another. And during that three years, they actually teamed up and fought against the Assyrians. Say so they were buddies for a little bit. Like, hey, let's be friends for a minute. We're gonna go fight this other guy that's a bigger enemy. This enemy for both of us. And, uh, and so now that enemy is gone, and so now they're back to, no, wait, we need to fight each other again. And so that's what's happening here. Now, Jehoshaphat is the king of Judah. That's the kingdom to the south. Now, let me get you caught up if you are don't remember, because I'm going to be honest, we began First Kings over a year ago. And, uh, and so now it's, it's been a while since the beginning of the book. We have two kingdoms now. It began as one, the kingdom of Israel. When Solomon was the king. But remember Solomon at the end of his life became unfaithful to God. And God said I'm going to rip the kingdom from you. And so there were two kings that followed Solomon. One was his son Rehoboam. He went to the south. The king of Judah. And then there was a kingdom of the north. The northern ten tribes that broke away. And they went with Jeroboam. And God went to Jeroboam and said. You're my new David. You're going to be the new king over my people. If you follow me. Well he didn't follow him. He set a trajectory uh, of unfaithfulness to God's people. And so at that point. There, be, there began two different nations. Judah in the south. Which was the one who stayed with God. Or was supposed to stay with God. But their kings aren't that great. And Israel, the kingdom of the north. And so now they're two separate countries. But these two kings that at the time came together. So King Jehoshaphat was the king of the southern kingdom, Judah. And King Ahab was the king over the northern kingdom. Now they came together and here's what Ahab says. Don't you know the Syrians took Ramoth Gilead from us? And we're just letting them have it? Now, Ramoth Gilead was a, just a strategic trading city. And so it was a city that they came down and they said they captured it. And that's their city now. Well, he's like, nah, we need to go get that kingdom again. Because don't you remember, there's been a lull of three years. We haven't fought anyone in three years. We're getting kind of jittery. We need to kind of stretch our muscles out. Let's go fight some people. Let's go take our city back. And so he tells Jehoshaphat, he's like, man, why don't you go with me? We're, we're tight, right? Let's go, let's go do this together, and we'll go team up and go take that guy on and take that city back. And here's what Jehoshaphat says. Okay, I am as you are, my people as your people, and my horses as your horses. What he just said was, all right, man, I'm kind of in. But there's something that I want you to see in this text. So as we walk through this text... We're going to look at it through the lens of three different characters, three of the main characters in it. One is Jehoshaphat, one is Ahab, and the last one is God. But check out this first one, because look what Jehoshaphat says. He says, sure, I'm into this alliance. We'll see about doing this. But first, look what he says in verse four. I mean, verse five. But Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, first, please ask what the Lord's will is. You know what he just said? He said, okay, man, I think I'm into this alliance, but first, let's pray about it. Isn't that an amazing thought? Like, just as a side note, like, he's making a major decision for his nation, whether they're going to go into battle, where he's going to send in everyone's sons to go into battle, and he's like, this is going to be a big deal. People are going to die. Let's stop for a second and pray about it together. 
Let's see what God wants us to do. Let's see how God thinks about this. Now, there's something in this that, like, in church-wise, you're like, oh, yeah, well, of course, we do that all the time. Everything I do, I say, let's pray about it. Like, no, like, for this, like, for this guy, in this moment, it's a big thing. Why? Who's he talking to? Ahab. The last guy who's going to be concerned about going to God to pray about this thing. And so there's something in Jehoshaphat here that the text is trying to point out to us that this dude is sincere in his faith. Why? Because he's talking to Ahab, not his D group. It's easy to say, let's pray together with your D group. But when you're talking to a guy who is definitely not a Christian, and he wants you to go into business together, and he wants you to head out in this, this direction, he's not concerned about your church, not concerned about his Christian life, and you say, hey man, we're going we're to go step into this, but first, let's you and I... Let's pray about it for a second and see if God wants us to do this. Let's see how God thinks about this. When I, when I saw that, I was like, that's, that's kind of special. Because Jehoshaphat here is public about his faith. Like it's not just a thing that he, he retains on Sunday morning when he comes to church. And he's like, he does the church thing and then he goes back to his normal work on Monday. And he's kind of just tunes out. And then, he, and then he comes back the next Sunday. He's like, okay, I'm going to tune in back into church stuff again. And it's like, like, I'm a good guy. I'm a good person. And I just come to church. Like, no, no, Jehoshaphat is public about his faith. And he's living it out so much so that he's going to this heathen king. And he's like, let's pray together and walk through this and see if God wants us to step forward in this action together. I, just, I thought that was awesome. And he knows this thing. Listen to Proverbs chapter 2 because he's making a major decision. And here's what Proverbs chapter 2 says. It says, the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up success for the upright. He's a shield for those who live with integrity so that he may guard the paths of justice and protect the way of his faithful followers. That you will understand righteousness and justice and integrity, every good path. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will delight you. Discretion will watch over you and understanding will guard you. And Jehoshaphat knows this is true. He says, listen, if you're about to make a major decision, you need to seek what God wants you to do in that moment. Why? Because wisdom comes from the Lord. That's what Jehoshaphat knows. And he's, even as he's stepping out, he's like, I'm going to be public about my faith in this moment, and we're going to pray together. Just, I, just, I appreciate his sincerity. And here's the thing. Is this is not a one-off moment for him. Because if you look back in verse 20, in chapter 22, skip over to verse 43. We're going to see this next week, actually. But in verse 43, this is not a one-off moment for Jehoshaphat. Look what it says in verse 43. This is small number 43. It says, he walked in all the ways of his father Asa, who was a good dude. He did not turn away from them, but did what was right in the Lord's sight. This was the trajectory of his life. This wasn't a one-off thing. He was sincere in his faith. He had a real faith, and he was really living it out and really pursuing and wondering, what does God want me to do in this moment? And he's asking him to do it. I thought that was cool. Now, there's a second dude in this story, the main guy, Ahab, that we're going to get to now. Because you see, first, Jehoshaphat's sincerity. The second thing I want you to see is Ahab's defiance. Okay? Here's one thing that makes him sense. That's why, anyways. So, check this out. What happened, this was several weeks ago, but what happened the last time we saw Ahab in chapter 21? Remember, he stole Naboth's vineyard. He, his wife took the vineyard. They killed Naboth. 
And uh, so now that was his property. And then Elijah comes to him. He's like, listen, God's going to kill you because he did that. But then he's not just going to kill you. He's going to kill every person in your family, every descendant in your family. They're going to be lying out in the streets and dogs are going to come lick up their blood. Crazy. Okay. It's a bad omen, a bad thing to hear about your family. But that's what he heard. And what does he do at the end of that chapter? After he hears that prophecy, what does he do? Look what it says. Verse 27. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth over his body and he fasted. He lay down in sackcloth and walked around subdued. At that point, he heard the judgment from God was coming for him and he, he felt bad. He repented. And so he humbled himself. He took off his royal clothes and put on a rice sack. That's what he did. He humbled himself. And then God saw that. And he says, hey, Elijah, did you see how, how he repented? Did you see how he responded, how he humbled himself? Therefore, I'm not going to bring the full scale of this disaster during his lifetime. There's still be punishment, but I'm not going to bring the full thing during his lifetime. Did you see that humility? And that was the last time we saw him. But here's one thing we learned about repentance in the Bible. It's short-lived. Repentance is short-lived. Like, if you want to live a life of repentance following Jesus, it is a daily thing. What does he say? Take up your cross daily. Why do you need to do it daily? Because every single day you wake up and your heart is bent away from him. It is, naturally. Repentance is short-lived. You have to choose to do it over and over. It's just like forgiveness. Like, you can't just forgive someone one time and then it's done. If someone hurts you really bad, it's a daily decision to forgive that person over and over and over again, to not bring it up and make it a big deal. That's a thing. That's how repentance works. It's like, think of your kids. Like, your kids fight with one another, and uh, your older kid shoves your younger kid. That younger kid falls, gets hits their head on the table. What happens with the older kid? They feel really bad at that moment. Right. And so all of a sudden, the older kid is really sweet. And she's bringing the, bringing the, he fell. Mom, look, he fell. He's really hurt. Look at him. <laughs> like, well, what happened? I, I, don't, I don't know, but we should get him checked out. Just, you know? Like, in, like, like, they start getting really upset over the fact that their little brother's hurt. Like, there's multiple reasons. One, they probably don't want to get in trouble. That's the main reason they're doing that. But the second thing is they probably do care that he got hurt in some sense. <clears throat> But then what happens the next day? We're back to shoving that kid back to the ground. Repentance is short-lived. You see that day in and day out with your own kids, but also in your own life. How often do you repent and you're like, man, I'm sucked into this sin. Whatever the sin you fill in the blank you put in, like you, you're sucked into it. And like you feel bad about it that you yelled in that way or you looked at that thing or you responded in that manner or you stole in that manner. Whatever it was. And you're like, man, I cannot believe I'm still doing this. And you feel guilty. You're like, God, please save me from this sin. Please rescue me from it. But then what happens the next week? You slip back into it again. Repentance is short-lived. It's a daily thing that you have to live in. That's what uh, Ahab is showing us. He did it once here, but then check out what happens in chapter 22. We see his defiance on full scale, full display again. Check it out. Choked on spit. Sorry. Okay. Because I didn't get to tell you that. Check out what he says. So what does Jehoshaphat tell him? 
says, let's pray about it. So then what does Ahab do? The king of Israel gathered the prophets, about 400 men. And he asked them, should I go against Ramoth Gilead for war or should I refrain? And these 400 prophets that he assembled, remember, remember his wife Jezebel killed all the prophets of God? And so he's assembling 400 prophets, you loose term, to come and give them direction on what Yahweh is telling them to do. And so they're coming here, and what do all 400 of these prophets say? You should march up, for the Lord is going to hand over the city to you. Okay, with 400 are saying that, that's probably good prospects for what God is saying. Now check out what, what Jehoshaphat says. But Jehoshaphat asked, isn't there a prophet of the Lord here anymore? Prophet of Yahweh here anymore? Let's ask him. Now, if you're trying to, Terry Cobble says this, I, I always turn to her because I want her quick summaries on things because then she's super good. But she says this, and I thought that was so funny. She said, if you're trying to buy toothpaste and 400 dentists agree that this toothpaste is the good one to go with, do you really need to go look for number 401 and get his opinion? No, you just buy the toothpaste. Now, why then, if there have been 400 prophets who've each one said, the Lord is going to hand over the city to you, why is Jehoshaphat saying, wait, 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 I want another opinion? It's because this dude, what was about his, what did he say about his faith? He was sincere in it. And he was discerning enough to look at who was assembled here before the kings who were doing like it's kind of funny how they how what they do here in a minute. Like they're all assembled. You got these two kings sitting, we're gonna read about it, and at the city gate, and you have these other prophets acting out what is actually gonna take place. They're like, like the Lord's gonna hand over the city. It's pretty kind of cool. One guy takes horns, it's like gonna gore the city with you and whatever. Anyway, so they're acting out this play. And so, like, why would he need another opinion? This dude is discerning. He's looking at who's been assembled here. He's like, wait, this isn't adding up. These are not really prophets of Yahweh. These prophets don't actually know this God. He says, isn't there a real prophet here? And look what Ahab says. Verse 8, the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is still one man who can inquire of Yahweh, but I hate him because he never prophesies good about me, but only disaster. One reason I love Ahab so much. He's just out there, man. I love it. So here, here, when you're seeing Ahab's defiance, who did Jehoshaphat ask for? A prophet of Yahweh. And what did Ahab do? He brought fake prophets and obscured the right guy. He said, I don't like him because I don't like what he says. And so therefore, I'm going to hide him away, and we're going to listen to these other people that say what I like. So, I hate this dude. And Jehoshaphat, he's kind of a kind guy. He's like, the king, you shouldn't say that. You shouldn't talk like that. You shouldn't say that you hate the prophet of Yahweh. And so the king is like, whatever, okay. He called an officer and said, hurry, go get Micaiah, son of Imla. Okay, here we go. Now, verse 10, the king of Israel and the king Jehoshaphat, here's this, this scene I was telling you about where they're acting this stuff out. 
The king of Israel and the king Jehoshaphat of Judah, clothed in royal attire. Side note, textually wise, I don't know why they keep calling him the king of Israel and not Ahab. When every text up to this point they called him Ahab, I don't understand that. Um, it could, I don't know. It could be when the writer, I don't, it doesn't matter. Anyway, we, we talk, if you have questions about that, we can talk through the, what are the scenarios? I don't know. Anyways, the king of Israel and the king Jehoshaphat of Judah, clothed in royal attire, were each sitting on his own throne. They were on the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets were prophesying in front of them. They're putting on a play, a drama, acting this stuff out. Then Zedekiah, son of Canaanah, uh, I think that's how you say that, made iron horns. And he said, this is what Yahweh says. You will gore the Arameans with these until they are finished off. Like, that's like, it's involved what they're watching. And so here's the question. Is this next dude, Micaiah, going to ruin their whole evening? So the messenger who went to call Micaiah gave him some instructions. He's going to the prophet, the one that the kings have said, hey, go get that guy. He's a real prophet of God. And so this messenger comes in. He's like, listen, dude, don't ruin this for us. Don't ruin this night. It's a good night. And this is what he says. Look, the words of the prophets are unanimously favorable to the king. So make sure that you say the same stuff. Let your words be like theirs and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, bro, as the Lord lives, I'm going to say whatever the Lord says to me. That's like, that's it. Like, when you're, okay, I, you've been in situations where like when, when you're speaking to someone and you, and you don't have authority over them. But like, or you've seen this situation play out like when it's other people. It's not you simply saying, hey, bro, I need you to do this. But when you're talking to someone and you don't have any authority over them, and then they're like, hey, man, I need you to do this. And the person's like, why don't you? I don't work for you. I'll say what I want to say. Like, like that's what's happening. And I, I, I kind of love his defiance here. But check this out. So he went to the king. And the king asked him, Micaiah, should we go to Ramoth Gilead for war or should we refrain? And here's what Micaiah tells him. They obviously have a history. Sure, march up, succeed. Lord's going to hand it over to you. Then the king said to him, no, that doesn't add up. How many times must I make you swear to not tell me anything but the truth in the name of the Lord? They have a history here. And so Ahab says, bro, I have made you promise me, swear to me over and over again that you won't lie to me. How do I know you're lying to me? Because you said something good. <laughs> so Micaiah, how many times am I going to make you swear that? So Micaiah said, okay, I saw all Israel. <laughs> Scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, they have no master. Let everyone return home in peace. Here's what he just said. I saw all of Israel and their king was supposed to be a shepherd for them. So David says in, in Psalm, in Psalm chapter 78, uh, there's, a, there's a song here in which he uh, was describing this. He says, he chose David, his servant. God chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheep pens and brought him from tending ooze to be shepherd over his people Jacob, over Israel, his inheritance. He shepherded them with a pure heart and guided them with his skillful hands. And so there is this trajectory, this theme 
of who the king of Israel was supposed to be for the people of God. He was supposed to be a shepherd for them. He was supposed to be a shepherd. But Ahab played his part in a trajectory away from that. He played his role in leading that, that role of king away from being a shepherd. So much so that Jesus actually took this theme up in the New Testament. And he said, look, there's been a theme throughout all of God's people's history in which the people who were set up to be shepherds over them, to lead them to love God and to love one another, have deserted that. And so he's about to feed the 5,000, Mark chapter 6. Jesus looks at the people, the crowd who's amassed around him, and he gets really sad for them because what does he say? He says, these people are like sheep without a shepherd. It's a trajectory that Ahab played a role in, and he's seeing it carried out all the way to Jesus' day. He said, then what does Jesus do? He says, no, I'm not going to let that continue. These people need a shepherd. And so in John chapter 10, what does he say? I am the good shepherd who's come for you. That's what he says. It's Jesus. He comes and fulfills the thing that these men were supposed to fill. Well, Ahab hears this. He's like, Micaiah said, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, they have no master. They have no one watching over them. And so after that, Ahab turns to Jehoshaphat and says, See, didn't I tell you he never prophesies anything good about me, but only disaster? I, I love it. I, I, I don't know. It's just his honesty about what he, where he's at, what he's hearing. But then, here's the thing. Micaiah goes on. Check this out. In, uh, wrong page. Verse 19. Then Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and the whole heavenly army was standing by him at his right hand and at his left hand. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab to march up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? So one was saying this and another was saying that. And then a spirit came forward, stood in the Lord's presence and said, I will entice him. And the Lord asked him, how? He said, I will go and become a lying spirit in the mouth of the prophets. And he said, he will, you will certainly entice him and prevail. Go and do that. And so now, go down. Uh, verse 23. So you see, the Lord has put a lying spirit into the mouth of all these prophets of yours. And the Lord has pronounced disaster against you. And so there's this prophecy that has come through Micaiah to Ahab and to all those assembled prophets. And so what he says is this, is all these other 400 prophets are lying to you. And they're not just lying to you out of, out of uh, anger or malice. They're lying to you because Yahweh has told them or made them lie to you. Crazy. And why, why did he do that? So that you will move forward and try to take that city again. And at that battle, God's going to kill you. So the other prophet comes up, Zedekiah, the one who had the, the horns. Uh, he came up and he slaps him. So look at this. He says this, Zedekiah, son of Kenanah, I think that's how you say it, came up and hit Micaiah on the cheek and demanded, did the Spirit of the Lord lead me to speak to you? 
And Micaiah replied, you will soon see when you go hide in your inner chamber on that day. You're going to see if I was lying or not. And so then what happens? Ahab says, go put that guy in jail until I return safely. And when I return safely, then you can let him out. And so they head out to battle. And check this out. Then the king of Israel, verse 30, and Judah's king Jehoshaphat went up to Ramoth Gilead. But the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, that prophet said I'm going to die here. So I'm going to take some precautions. I'm going to disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your royal attire. So the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. And so what we see on full display here, we saw Jehoshaphat's sincerity and faith. We see Ahab's deceptiveness or his, his defiance against the plan of God. So much so that, that here, what he does, he hears what God says. He said, these dudes are lying to you. You're going to march out in battle. And when you march out in battle, God's going to kill you. And this was his plan all along to bring judgment against you over the way that you neglected your role over leading God's people. That's what he says. And so what Ahab says is, okay, if you think that's what God says, I'm going to not be Ahab. So we're going to march out to battle. I am going to dress like a normal person. But we're going to have Jehoshaphat look like the king. And so therefore, if God wants to come after me, he's not going to be able to find me. <laughs> okay. And so you see Ahab's deceptive posture and like how he, how he, like he makes the, <laughs> it's, it's, I don't know, I, just, I love this guy so much. But what he does and how he, he lets go of his royal attire in this moment it's kind of a cool picture. It's a, it's a picture from the text in which it's showing that far from being the shepherd over his people, what is he doing? He's removing himself from that role, and he is, he is assuming the role or looking like all of his sheep. And so he's leaving that role behind. And so it's a picture of what's really happening with his, with his role. So he's blending in with his sheep, but he's leaving someone else to hold the bag. That's what he's doing. But here's the third character in this that I want you to see. We saw Jehoshaphat. We saw Ahab's defiance. And here's the third thing. We should see God's sovereignty over every bit of this. God's sovereignty over every bit of this. Because throughout this narrative, the text makes one thing very clear. God is in control over everything that's happening. Look back at verse 19. What did Micaiah say was happening to bring this about? It was God's plan. So God's in heaven, and he's among his council, and there are these other beings, these spirits that are coming up to him, and he's talking to them. And what does he say? Who's going to go down and lead Ahab into death? Like, who's going to go down and bring judgment upon him? Look, what does he say? He says this. The spirit came forward in the Lord's presence and said, I will entice him. Who's going to entice him to march up and fall? And a spirit comes up and it says, I'm going to entice him. And God says, how are you going to do it? He says, I'm going to put a lying spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. And so that God said, you will certainly entice him and you will prevail. Go and do that. So if, you've, if you're familiar with the Bible, this sounds similar to the beginning of Job, doesn't it? So the beginning of Job... 
God is there and he's talking with Satan in heaven. He's talking with Satan. And they're like, hey, man, don't you see Job? He's a great dude. He follows me. He loves me. He obeys me. He teaches his kids to love me. And Satan says, no. He only does that towards you because you've only been good to him. Because you've given him a lot of stuff. You've given him a good family. You've made him rich. But if you take those things away, he'll curse you to your face. And God tells Satan, okay, go take his stuff away. Go take his family away. And then we're going to see what happens. And there's this that scene that's taking place there. It's the same thing that's happening here, in which God is talking to the spirits, and he's like, listen, I need you to go do something for me. And so that kind of raises questions for us. We're like, wait, what's happening here? How is, how is this, how is that working? How can spirits work for God when they're bad? Like, how does this, how does this happen? Let me, let me explain something. There is nothing in creation, in the heavens or on earth, that is outside of God's authority. There's nothing. And that includes Satan. That includes Satan. There is nothing that extends outside of God's authority. Everything, including Satan, was created by God for a purpose. Everything. And falls under his authority. And so what happens here? These guys, the spirits, what we call demons or Satan, they are agents of justice. And so in the Old Testament, the word Satan, that's, that's how we get the title of Satan. It's the word Satan. And that is the person who is the accuser or the executioner, depending on who you follow scholarly. But one of those two is what he means. The accuser or the executioner. He is God's hatchet man. He is an agent of justice. Why? Because Satan knows that sinners deserve death. He knows that. And so he is an agent of justice. And so when he, God needed something taken care of in the Old Testament, what would he do? He would send Satan to take care of it. To bring about accusations against sinners that would lead to their demise. Why? Because God is holy and nothing unholy can be with him. Or can have a relationship with him. And so God sends his agents of justice to go and take care of these problems. These guys work for God. Now for some of us, that's kind of unsettling. Like, wait, wait, wait. That's, I'm uncertain about how, how this works. Like, what does that mean? This is what Jesus takes care of. You see, we're worried about, like, wait, wait, wait. Can he still bring accusations against me? Or is he still is he antagonistic towards me? Like, how does, this, how does this stuff work? If these guys work for God, then what does that say about me and about how they work in the world now? This is what Jesus says on the cross. Did he did on the cross? What does Colossians chapter 2.15 say? At the cross of Jesus Christ, what did he do? He disarmed the rulers and the authorities. What did he do at the cross? He became sin so that sinners wouldn't have to face the judgment that results from their own sin. Why? Because Jesus took the penalty in their place. And so since we hold to faith in Jesus Christ, we now have no, no, we have nothing else that the accuser could come and accuse us of. Why? Because Jesus took our sin, not us anymore. Jesus holds our sin. And so what happened at the cross? Jesus disarmed these guys. 
they no longer have anything left to do with God's people. Because God's people are holy like God. That's what Jesus' cross did when he died and he resurrected from the dead. And that only applies to those who believe in Jesus. And so that's what happened. And in Revelation chapter 2, I mean chapter 12, there's a, there's a, a, a scene of the end of like what happens at the cross. And there's a scene that have where the dragon, this great satanic dragon, the serpent from Genesis chapter 3, is cast out of heaven. And there's a song that starts being sung in chapter, I mean, in verse 10. And it says this, this is chapter 12, verse 10 of Revelation. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have now come. Why? Because the accuser has been of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night. What, is it? what did he do before the cross? He was in heaven with God, accusing the people of earth day and night, day and night, day and night over their sin. He's accusing people, but at the cross, what happened? He's been thrown down. They conquered him. Why or how? By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Because they did not love their lives even to the point of death. He's saying the believers, the people who've gone before us in the faith have conquered the devil. Why? Through the blood of the lamb and their testimony of what happened at the cross. They're testifying that you have nothing left to accuse me of. Because of what Jesus did for me on the cross. Amen. So he's been cast out. But he's not done. Why is he searching for like a roaring lion? For people to devour? Because he is not cool with the cross. Because sinners deserve justice. And so what does God have to do to him? Restrain him. Restrain him. And then he has a place set up for Satan to go. And all at the end of all eternity, it's called hell. It's a place designed for him to remove him away from God's people. Why? Because there's nothing left to accuse them of anymore. And so, that was a total side note here. But I thought it was worth looking at for just a second. In any case, a lying spirit was sent by God to bring about this war situation to carry out judgment against Ahab. Now Ahab deceived the army by blending in. So he's looking like a normal soldier. The other army's like, hey, go for the king. Oh wait, he's not the king. Where, where's the king? And so they, they turn away and they start, they start backing up. And they're like, wait, wait, that's the wrong king. We don't want to kill that guy. We just want to kill Ahab. And so here's what happens. Ahab is trying to escape the judgment of God. Well, here's the problem. God sees and rules over everything. And so look at this text. Right here in verse 34. But a man, just a random dude, drew his bow without taking special aim. <laughs> so specific. So specific about how non-specific this guy was. He drew his bow without taking special aim and let it go. And struck the king of Israel through the joints of his armor. So he said to his charioteer, Turn around and take me out of the battle, for I'm badly wounded. And the battle raged throughout that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Arameans. He died that evening, and blood from his wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot. And then a cry rang out 
into the, uh, in the army as the sun set, declaring each man to his own city and each man to his own land. And so the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria. I'm just going to read this because it's crazy. Then someone washed the chariot at the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood, and the prostitutes bathed in it, according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. So this dude is defiance on full display. If I'm going to run away from God, and I'm going to thwart his plan, I'm going to get away from him, I'm going to escape him because he's not going to be able to find me. And what does God do? He finds a random dude to just get willy-nilly with his bow and arrow. He lets it go, and it shoots Ahab, the exact guy it needed to shoot, in the exact place it needed to shoot him, in between his armor. And what happened? God struck him down, just like he said he would. And in this, Jehoshaphat was proved right in seeking to pray to this guy. So where do we land here? This is the bank comes up. Where, where do we land here? I think this is what I, I want to read this to you. God's sovereignty and his unstoppable will that brings judgment in this manner against Ahab is good and right. And in this, God demonstrates his great love for us. And here's why. Here's how. Because it's this unstoppable will that brings judgment. It's this unstoppable will that brings judgment against sinners is the same will that also brings justification to sinners through the death and resurrection of Jesus. It is God's unstoppable will to carry on history in the way that it goes, in the direction that it's going. So it was his will to bring judgment against this dude. And it was his will to justify sinners through his son, Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. That's what the text is showing us. It's his plan. From the beginning of history, from the beginning of time, all history was pointing to the fact that we needed a Savior. Just like Ahab, we needed someone to come and rescue us. And his will is pointing to us saying, I'm going to complete that. I'm going to bring that about. My son Jesus Christ is going to come and take your place on the cross so that when you face me one day, you don't have to face me in the manner that Ahab did. You can face me as though a father with his child. 